Please be seated. It gives me great pleasure to introduce our speaker for this evening, Professor Theophis, or Thee Smith, who is currently an associate professor in the religion department at Emory University, as well as an Episcopal priest serving at the Cathedral of St. Philip in, Saint in Atlanta. Professor Smith is a graduate of St. John's College in Annapolis, class of 1973. He also studied at the Virginia Seminary and at the Graduate Theological Union in Berkeley. He is the author of Conjuring Culture, Biblical Formations of Black America, and co-editor with Mark Wallace of Curing Violence. Professor Smith has many ties with members of the St. John's community. Uh, in his undergraduate days here, he was a student of Miss Brands and Mr. Burns, and perhaps other senior faculty who I'm overlooking. Uh, he was a fellow student of mine and Mr. Burke's uh, at the Graduate Theological Union in Berkeley. He was a fellow student with Ms. Silver. Uh, on the faculty at Kentucky State University, he was a colleague of Mr. Salem's. Uh, and on the faculty at Emory, he was there when Ms. Langston was a doctoral student. So please welcome home Professor Three C. Smith. Well, thank you very much. Thank you for your warm welcome. It's good to be back among friends, and especially uh, on this occasion to share with you something that really delights my heart, which is this uh, performance of the Gospel at Colonus. It brings together a lot of sectors of my life, both my studies here at the, at the college in terms of my reading in Greek classics, as well as my later work in seminary on African-American spirituality and liberation theology. And so, um, I'm, I'm delighted to share it with you, and thank you for the opportunity for the kind of intellectual uh, delight that I, that I can experience with this. It's called From Ancient Agony to Contemporary Ecstasy, the Gospel at Colonus, Part 1. So let's see, um, and I will try to time this so that we get to Part 2 with good time for questions and answers afterwards. The Production has been described as a current-day oratorio based on Sophocles' second work in his classic trilogy, the play Oedipus at Colonus. Of course, the first, uh, first part of the cycle is called Oedipus the King, or Oedipus Rex, which many of us learned in high school. And then uh, the last uh, play in the trilogy is Antigone. Um, most folks don't know the Oedipus at Colonus, and it was a happy choice for a kind of marriage between uh, a black Pentecostal church service and, uh, and the ancient classical work. So it's set in a black Pentecostal worship context where Greek myth and mystery religion replaced the Bible story and Christian theology. And uh, on the one hand, on the other hand, the Greek chorus and classical actors are replaced by a gospel choir alongside state-of-the-art black preaching, testifying, prayer and praise performances. So it's a nice kind of crisscross of, of displacements, of replacements. A nice kind of weave. I don't expect you to be able to read this. This is really to remind me to point out um, a couple of things here. The, the, um, the work was directed and some music composed by Lee Brewer, as well as by Bob Telson. And it features um, the five blind boys of Alabama, who are African-American men, a blind men's group, uh, Clarice Fountain and the blind boys of Alabama. 
And uh, along with Morgan Freeman, uh, Clarence Fountain takes turns playing the blind Oedipus. Uh, blind African-American men are, uh, are a kind of phenomenon in, uh, in African-American culture. You'll know Stevie Wonder, for example. You'll know Ray Charles. Um, but uh, blind me black men who are performers, who have some kind of virtuosity, uh, are, are a key phenomenon. And, and this uh, production takes, takes advantage of that, deploys that in some useful ways. There's also a, a, a gospel choir, the Institutional Radio Choir, along with uh, soul music singers, the original soul stirrers, and others who are performing. First presented as part of the Brooklyn Academy of Music's Next Wave Festival. It's also been presented um, at, in Philadelphia as part of the American Music Theater Festival. Uh, and uh, it's available in some recorded forms by Warner Brothers and by Nonsuch Records. You can actually get the um, recording of the music from Amazon.com. I want to thank the composer-director, Lee Brewer, for encouraging me uh, to present this. Uh, as he says, Gospel Clonus is performed in lots of places around the country during the year, and it's especially studied in uh, drama departments around the country. His agent, Sharon Levy, was very helpful for me in terms of getting a recording that I could study in great detail. And uh, I want to thank Emily, Emily Booker Langston for thinking of me for this lecture as a uh, as a colleague and friend, and uh, Emory colleague, thank you. And Michael Dink, uh, Dean, as Dean, I want to thank you for your leadership in uh, promoting this kind of work and this kind of connection uh, between cultures. I had a lot of help from the Emory Center for Interactive Technology in setting up this uh, presentation. My interest uh, is uh, as a religious studies scholar. Um, the gospel, gospel at Colonists offers the initiated viewer a tour de force of cascading parallels between ancient Greek tragedy and black religious expression. Um, I've been viewing this ever since I first came across it in 1987. Um, that's 20 years now. And it always rewards me with more to, to experience, um, more to marvel at. My scholarly goal here is to identify, display, and to commend for future projects the distinctive elements of past and present that produced such a happy outcome in the contemporary theater. This seems to me a kind of um, model for what could be, we could be doing all the time in terms of retrieving the past and inter inter interacting it in the present. So from a history of religions perspective, I like to quote Houston Smith, the author of the book called The World's Religions, with his comment that if, if we take the world's religions at their best, we find the distilled wisdom of the human race. So unlike the new atheists uh, who think that everything originally evil in human nature is, uh, has been caused by religion, uh, there are some, uh, and, and also acknowledging that religion is not all sweetness and light, there are nonetheless reservoirs of, uh, of wisdom that, uh, that, uh, that occur in religious traditions. Um, and that are crucial for the entire species. Um, and, uh, and I think we'll get some hint of that tonight. Key phenomena, once again, don't try to read this, but uh, for myself, I'd just like to name the key phenomena that, uh, that draw me to this kind of study with this kind of material. 
revelation, epiphany, disclosure, issues of violence, terror, horror, shame, tragedy, catharsis, the purging or purgation or venting, uh, mystery, myth, and truth, the interaction between them, pity, empathy, compassion, solidarity, and embrace, sanctuary, finding sanctuary, redemption, finding redemption, ecstasy, experiencing ecstasy. These are all the kind of phenomenal uh, uh, data that, uh, that engage me in this production. Deity, divinity, the sacred, worship, adoration, and awe, ritual structures and transformations, drama, character, narrative, and narrative reversals, and wisdom. Think no longer that you are in command here, but rather think how when you were, you served your own destruction. Welcome, brothers and sisters. So the performance begins as a kind of church service with an invocation and a welcome to the congregation by the, by the, the ritual leader, uh, by Morgan Freeman here playing uh, the pastor of the congregation. Um, so it already has this kind of tr uh, transmutation of context into a contemporary African-American church service context. <laughs> I may have to do something. Oh, here we are. Ah, right. Now, what we just heard uh, as the invocation is from um, the first part of the Oedipus cycle, Oedipus Rex, Oedipus the King. And it's Creon's final words to the blind Oedipus at the end of that play. Think no longer that you are in command here, but rather think how when you were, you served your own dis destruction. And it's a s very solemn and, if you will, um, uh, uh, almost deplorable way to begin. Uh, it, it expresses all the pathos of Oedipus, who was this towering figure as king of Thebes and then, and then became uh, so abjectly miserable. Um, and uh, a kind of core piece of wisdom here, namely that there are ways in which we can control our lives that are actually self-destructive. And, uh, and we, it behooves us to figure out what that is. So um, it's already revelatory with this kind of invocation. The sources that the director and composers relied on was Robert Fitzgerald's translation of Oedipus at Colonus, which, uh, which he did as part of a larger work with uh, uh, with Dudley Fitz in terms of the th two of them collaborating on the entire Oedipus cycle. 
there's a kind of faithful following of the text. Uh, and so uh, this is a marvelous way for students to study the use of classical texts for contemporary, contemporary projects. I take for my text this evening the book of Oedipus. Oedipus. Damned in his birth, in his marriage, damned. Damned by the blood he shed with his own hand. Now you have all heard of the death of Jocasta. Jocasta whose husband was by her husband, whose children were by her child. You have heard how the wretched Oedipus found her body swaying from the cruel cord she had noosed about her neck. I, I would blot out from my mind what happened next. For they say that this man, this king, ripped from her gown the golden brooches that were her ornaments, raised them on high and plunged them straight down into his own eyeballs, crying no more. No more shall you look on the misery about me, the horrors of my own doing. From this moment, go in darkness. And as he spoke, he struck at his eyes. Not once, mind you, but many times. They say the blood burst from his ruined sockets like red hail. In Exodus, where it speaks of his death in a place called Colonus, which was sacred and of his redemption there we direct you to lines 275 through 279 wherein he cries out to his daughters i could say much to you if you could understand me but as it is i have only this prayer for you live where you can be as happy as you can Happier please God than God has made your father. Amen. Don't go away, don't go away, O oh Father, won't you stay? The voices of the daughters or sisters, Antigone and Ismene, to their father, Oedipus, don't go away, Father, won't you stay? So we've got uh, the beginning of the production, this kind of uh, black church phenomenon, the preacher, the choir, the call and response between the, the preacher and the choir. And uh, we've got an invocation uh, or a uh, representation of a sacred text, so-called in this case, the Book of Oedipus, and the book of Exodus. And so I wanted you to be aware of how the word Exodus gets into this production. If I can move it forward.
So uh, here are some critical textual issues. Uh, the expression of the daughters, sisters, don't go away, oh father, won't you stay? One would like to find the, you know, the source of that in the, in the, in the Sophocles text. But especially this word Exodus, it stood out for me as a scholar of African-American religion because the biblical book of Exodus has been such a key document in the black religious experience or the black American experience in which African-American slaves understood themselves to be experiencing American culture in the same way as ancient Israelites experienced slavery in Egypt. And uh, for so many generations, there was a kind of yearning for an Exodus experience here in the United States. Uh, and, uh, and so the, the fact that this word occurs in this text uh, with reference to Sophocles was a, uh, was a curiosity. And of course, it's important to, to note then that the, the, uh, the Sophocles text is divided up into segments that begin with a prologue and various scenes and odes that conclude at the very end of Oedipus the King with a category called Exodus as in exiting, as in leaving, as in concluding. And so that uh, the reference here to the book of Exodus is not a reference to the biblical ex Exodus, it's a reference to the Exodus of the classic play of the, of the, uh, of the tragedy. Um, it's that kind of both confusion and convergence that's an interesting phenomenon with this kind of work. Uh, and uh, to the degree that one is initiated or not initiated into the issues, uh, this will, these kinds of convergences matter or don't matter. Uh, but I especially thought they would be important for us to take a note of tonight. So the next scene is actually a recapitulation from the end of Oedipus the King in which uh, one of the church members playing the role of evangelist actually quotes this segment from Oedipus the King, men of Thebes look upon Oedipus, this is the king who solved the famous riddle. And then if, you were, if, if, if you've actually had a seminar on, uh, on this work, um, you will, or in other ways in terms of reading uh, uh, Greek classics, you will be very familiar with this piece of wisdom. Let every man in mankind's frailty consider his last day and let none presume on his good fortune until he find life at his death, a memory without pain. Uh, and then a way of incorporating this as part of a, of a African-American religious uh, statement of, of, of insight, of revelation, with the, with the concluding word, Amen in that tradition. Uh, so it is this sense of fusing ancient wisdom with uh, contemporary religious, uh, religious expression.
daughter, sister. Again, the pathos of calling your daughter also your sister. And uh, Clarence Fountain here, the lead singer of the Five Blind Boys of Alabama, uh, is playing uh, the blind Oedipus. Um, it's a performance decision to have Oedipus alternate between Morgan Freeman, who also plays the preacher, and uh, Clarence Fountain, who leads the, uh, the blind boys, uh, the, the group, the quintet called the blind boys. Um, and uh, the I especially just appreciate the, um, the kind of, already the kind of dignity of the character of Clarence Fountain, as well as a sense of uh, gravity and, um, and passion, which we'll see more of momentarily. Where have we come to? Where have we come to now, Antigone? I see a man not far away. Father, you must ask what place this is. Friend. Friend. Can you tell me what ground is this? What God is honored here? What ground is this? What God is honored here? Where leaves and berries throng And wine dark ivy climbs the bowl The sweet sojourning nightingale Murmurs all night long Hear the drops of heaven Heavens do. At daybreak all the year, the clusters of narcissus bloom. Narcissus bloom. Time hollowed garlands for the brows of those great ladies whom we fear. At daybreak all the year in Colonus. The clusters of Narcissus bloom, time-hallowed garlands for the brows of those great ladies whom we fear, the goddesses of the place, the sacred spirits of the place. So you'll remember them as the Erinnes or the Eumenides or the Furies. They are also called daughters of darkness who bar the way to Colonus. Uh, they're referred to as ladies whose eyes are terrible and also as sweet children of original darkness. And uh, the text, which hopefully is, will be available in the college bookstore, if not already, is actually a, a very explicit about the connections both with the original Sophocles text as well as with the various adaptations and, and uh, variations on the text. Uh, so I commend this to you as well. Um, one of the things I love about the, the soloist and his singing of, about Colonus is that it's so en enchanting uh, that it's actually a place I'd love to know uh, just from the artistry of his, of his performance. Uh, 
And now, lead me on. Lead me on, he says. Lead me on. Do not go on. This place is going. So there's the drama of uh, this place's sacred holy ground. You can't just uh, presume to walk here to enter Colonus without permission, without, without somehow passing through the barrier of the sacred and the boundary from the profane uh, into the sacred. And there's a kind of very, it seems to me, compelling sense of the, of the drama of that with the two quintets. Uh, so the blind, the, the quintet of the blind boys, and then this quintet of the men dressed in red. And there's a kind of conflict being staged between them, between the two quintets, kind of face-off. Lead me on. Lead me on, he says. Lead me So that conflict is a site for the phenomena of agony or agonism or antagonism. And the stage directions in the Brewer text describe the blind men forcing their way into the church as the two quintets face off. The, lead, the leader, the, uh, the, uh, the classical leader of the, of the Greek chorus, called the Choragos, bars the way lays hands upon the singer, confines him to a chair for questioning, while the blind members of the quintet are seated on benches and represent deacons in the church. So the staging of all of this is the staging of a, of a fusion between the two worlds, the two, the two cultural worlds of the, of the Greek, of the Greek uh, theater and uh, of, the, of the black church.
the ability to shout, to use one's voice as a kind of sonic instrument to express agony and passion is a, is a, uh, a cultivated uh, craft in this tradition. Uh, and performers like uh, uh, Louis Armstrong and others have excelled in it. And uh, Clarence Fountain here, the leader of the, the Blind Boys, is excelling in it even now, as we've just seen in this last scene. And he's incorporating, if you will, all the agony of Oedipus, who needs to find a, a resting place, and who, and who keeps finding obstacles, and keeps being blocked and barred, and, and, uh, and, is, uh, and is weary of that, and needs rescue and relief from that. And now we come to the interrogation of, of Oedipus. going back to, who is this man, what is his race, who is his father? Issues of race, of course, key in the black experience, uh, as well as in this tradition. where the two actors, Morgan Freeman and Clarence Fountain, trade off playing the blind Oedipus. Um, there will be a moment of, I'm preparing you for what I'm calling here staging catharsis, that is, how does one actually purge the passions of pity and terror in the classic uh, Aristotelian formula? And uh, the leader of the group, uh, the Choragus, the man in the red, the heavy-bodied bo heavy and deep-voiced, high-voiced sometimes man, will, will use the words pity and sin and killing of the father sonically to drive Oedipus into confession, into disclosure, into shame, uh, into, into self-revelation. Uh, and the, the kind of cr crucible or vice that he puts Oedipus in uh, is, is pathetic uh, as well as um, uh, mesmerizing and, and even, even uh, if you will, for the audience, a kind, of, um, a kind of an agony, a kind of a vicarious agony from which the audience needs relief or catharsis. What? Evil things have slept since long ago. Do not 
open my old wound and my shame. It is told everywhere and never dies. Thebes married me to evil. Fate and I were joined there. shall not be judged so. In me, myself, you could not find such evil as would have made me sin against my own. Perhaps our ancestors angered God long ago. If there were prophecies repeated by the oracles that the father's death would come from his own son, then how could you justly blame it upon me? On me who was yet unborn, yet unconceived. He wished to murder me. I did not know him. Before the law, before God, I am innocent. Well, Oedipus is compelling self-defense. Um, and uh, just because of time, we're, we're going to rush on and um, on to the other scenes. Uh, uh, there begins to be a transition here, which we can prepare for in the following slide, I trust. A voice foretold where I shall die, where my soul shall rest and my body lie where pain unending ends for me, where I shall find sanctuary. So Oedipus has survived the questioning, the interrogation, uh, and now he's saying there's something more going on here. There's a higher, there are bigger boundaries. There's a higher, there's a larger framework than just my, the story of my sin that never dies, that, that I'm always being confronted with uh, and, my, and, and always being required to defend myself uh, against and justify myself in relation to. There is a bigger story. There is a voice that foretells something more for me. A voice foretold 
got prophecy and prayer. So uh, t two of the major phenomena of, the, of this tradition, uh, trying to rescue the, the accursed, uh, uh, yearning for redemption, and, uh, and, and in fact, uh, inducing redemption. It's in this context that Oedipus is finally welcomed in Colonus, and we'll hear the song and the, and the declaration, we will never drive you away from peace in this land. And so we're on the cusp of a dramatic transition from tragic catharsis to what I call comic catharsis. And we're familiar with this from Dante's, uh, the transition from the Inferno to the Purgatorio, where Purgatory is cathartic away from the tragic dimension or, and uh, in a way that evokes uh, Tolkien's term, eucatastrophe, or good catastrophe a beneficent downturn in one's fortunes that can render even Adam's fall as a fortunate fault. So I ask you to prepare to experience Clarence Fountain as a comic Oedipus in the next scene. And here I'm using comic not simply in the technical way as we do with, re with respect to the divine Dante's divine comedy, but also in the ordinary sense of amusing. Theseus has come. 
Vietnam. I just can't help but be amused by that. Uh, you, you know, the agony of, of, of Oedipus uh, with all this kind of interrogation and quizzing and drilling and then his, his yearning for pathos and a resting place and then suddenly he's at the piano uh, rocking and rolling like the, like the best of them. Um, I think it's a good use of so-called comic relief and a great fusion of the various traditions. So the Jubilee song is No Never, Never Drive You Away From Peace In This Land. The chorus takes up the Jubilee song. Ain't no way, ain't no way, we'll drive you away. Comic effects everywhere. Static shouts. The holy dance. might as well break a loose. Good God Almighty. Let's hear Kelowna say yeah. Remarkable shift, wouldn't you say? Uh, I find this totally delightful. The actor who just comes on the stage now is playing Creon. He's Robert Earl Jones. He's the father of James Earl Jones, who plays Darth Vader in the Star Wars series. So it's a long tradition of acting in that family. So that's, uh, that's, the, uh, that's where I'll stop for the end of part one. Let's just see how far we'll get into part two. Um, uh, but you see already the, 
the upward, the, the swing, you know, from pathos, uh, shame, horror, to uh, uh, redemption and purgation and, uh, and transformation. Ecstatic catharsis, the sonic driving of the choraga saying, can I hear Kelowna say, yeah, y'all might as well break a loose. This is actually not in the text. <laughs> Neither in Sophocles nor in Brewer. And uh, when I spoke to Lee Brewer earlier um, last week, he said uh, it was not unusual for the actors to get so caught up in ecstatic, uh, in ecstatic affect uh, during a rehearsal that they would simply have to s stop the recording and, s and stop the rehearsal until, until people kind of uh, recovered. Um, it was a remarkable statement that precisely uh, in the context of a performance that does not feature explicit Christian uh, uh, terms and, uh, and prayers, but is actually using this text, the text of Sophocles, nonetheless the phenomena can still have that kind of effect. Um, now we're skipping a very lovely choral ode from Antigone uh, in order to go on to part two. What I've done here in part two is I've actually, and once again, this will be hard for you to see from where you're looking, but um, I've actually put on the left-hand side of the screen the text, the Brewer text of the Gospel at Colonus, and on the right-hand side of the screen the Sophocles text, and just simply shown the uh, correlations between them. Um, Lee Brewer, the, once again the director-composer, used the term recombinant to describe Oedipus at Colonus as a kind of postmodern work, like much postmodern architecture in which you recombine uh, aspects of, of, of classical art architecture along with modernist architecture. architecture. Uh, and so it's recombinant in that way. Uh, so if one is looking for uh, other kinds of projects that have this kind of dimension of, of intercultural fusion, uh, there's a kind of model here for that. Similarly, part two, the various correlations. Uh, so this is the kind of thing if one were teaching a drama course or a classics course or a religion course, one would be useful, something useful to have one's students actually do the kind of, uh, track the kinds of correlations uh, between the contemporary work and the classical work. In this phase, uh, we get to the transformation of Oedipus from the living to the dead. Though he has watched a decent age pass by, yes. a man will sometimes still desire the world. Desire the world. I declare I see no wisdom in that man. In that man. The endless hours pile up a drift of pain, more unrelieved each day. Each day. And as for pleasure, <laughs> When he is sunken in excessive age. Well, that means when he's got to be an old man. You will not see his pleasure anywhere. Anywhere. 
Not to be born surpasses all philosophy. All philosophy. The second best is to have seen the light, seen the light. and to go back quickly from whence we came. The feathery follies of his youth once over. What trouble is beyond the range of man? Range of man. What heavy burdens will he not endure? Will he not endure? Jealousy. Jealousy. Faction. Quarreling and battle. And we're talking about the bloodiness of war. The grief of war. And then he comes to strengthless age. Abhorred by all men. Unfriended. Without company. In that uttermost twilight. Where he must live with the truth my friends not just for me a blind and ruined man maybe not for you yeah. but maybe for me maybe. you see here I am yeah. I'm a blind man yeah. but here I am yeah. I'm a messed up man, messed up man. but here I am Come on. I'm a ruined man yeah. You know, I think on some shore in the north, concussive waves make streams this way and that in the gales of winter. And it's, it's like that with me sometimes. The wild rack breaking over me, all the way from my head to my feet, and coming on forever. Now from the plunging down of the sun, now from the sunrise quarter, oh, now from where the noonday gleams, and now from the night and from the north. But I hear it this evening, children. I want you to know I hear it this evening. I hear it cascading down the air. About the God throne, I'm talking about the gigantic holy sound. I, I want you to know that terror crawled all the way to the tips of my hair. I want you to know this evening that my soul, uh, my heart shakes because I know this evening that my soul, hallelujah, is salvation bound and where my Heaven's height has cracked. Uh, this is the kind of transition from uh, this world into the other world, the coming of the, of the God to take Oedipus uh, to a place where no one sees him die. It's, the, it's uh, one of the rare places of convergence in the, in, the Greek, uh, in, the, in the Greek context, Greek classical mythological context, of a kind of disappearance, of a kind of a, it's a di disappearance of the, of the body, um, 
and uh, and uh, and it's a kind of mystery phenomenon in this tradition, uh, part of its aspect as mystery religion, uh, which it in, in which it comes into convergence with Christian traditions of, of uh, resonant mystery. Just because of time, I just want to kind of fast forward to um, just the, to the last scenes of the, of the performance. If I can get this uh, to cooperate. And I just want to say something about this. Um, as a scholar and as a teacher, it's been very painful for me to come across students especially who have no aptitude for understanding this kind of performance as, as an aesthetic in its own right and who experience this kind of performance as, as, uh, as simply messing up the text messing up the classical, the kind of purity of the classical tradition. I use the word purity advisedly there. And what's clearly evident to me is that one has to be initiated into different aesthetics. That part of what we do with our children routinely is to cultivate among them an appreciation for the aesthetic of this or that performance tradition. And that we haven't done it with this kind of, with this kind of work in the kind of universal way we've done with the Western classical traditions. In the black aesthetic, there's an oscillation between noise and order that's probably widely distributed in West Africa as a speaking convention occurring there without its attendant new world meaning as an expression of cultural duality. The fact that people have grown up into two worlds and have experienced both trauma and redemption in the context of two different cultural systems. And the symbolic movement between the categories of different cultures as in biculturalism. The Africanization of behavior is an underlying performance rule in the New World and is everywhere connected with a break from order, usually represented by European-derived forms, into seemingly disorderly group behavior. Double meaning systems beyond the black aesthetic, we can observe the ubiquity of, in the African-American diaspora, of double systems in virtually every sphere of human activity in whatever aspect of social or cultural organization, in the linguistic, religious, economic, legal, medical, and aesthetic expressive domains, there exists a pairing or opposition of an official institution or form and its vernacular or African-American counterpart. It's not surprising that people having experienced a certain kind of fusion, confusion of double traditions express it in their art and in their life's projects and in their institutions. So that in a way, in the same way as the body encodes its experience of trauma and recovery from trauma, so do cultures encode them in the forms of aesthetic expression. And to not be initiated into that dynamic is to, is to not understand the forms of beauty uh, that are being expressed as well in those traditions.
Africanization is expressed on the musical plane by the addition, for example, of a complex rhythmic accompaniment, accompaniment to a staid Protestant hymn tune. It can be altered in the direction of a percussive singing style that expresses Africanization. But there is more going on than what is conventionally called expressive behavior. The change in style is generating a ritual event, namely in the context of what we've just seen, spirit possession or trance phenomena, afflatus or ecstatic release. So at the end of the performance, Oedipus says he's got to go higher. Lift me higher, a little bit higher. A break from order. The sonic driving. Shouting, the loudness. And the audience gets in on it too. certainly more we can do with this, but uh, what I hope to be able to do is just to simply leave you the rest of this available as a, as a PowerPoint um, presentation for, for your use, and uh, it's been a pleasure sharing this much with you, and uh, I'd love to say more, but I'm mindful of time and would like to leave some time for questions and comments, uh, uh, and so um, let's stop there and have a conversation. Thank you. <laughs>